Hello, and welcome to the Canyons Are Calling podcast. I'm Cheryl Jocelyn, your host for the show. Happy October. I hope you are all loving this fall weather. Kanab had a freak snowstorm a couple weeks ago where I got four inches of snow in southern Utah, which is pretty weird this early in the season, but was able to get out into a canyon and enjoy some refreshing cold water, so that was awesome. I hope you guys were all able to get out into the canyon over the weekend as well. Um, a couple things before we get into the interview today. I have updated my website um, just in time for the holidays. I have my beer glasses in. I've got stickers on there. Um, I have also partnered with Teespring to provide quality clothing. Um, I have tons of different options and three different logos. So go on there and check that out. Um, I have also partnered with Patreon. If you are enjoying the show and feel like it is of value to you, you can go on there and make a donation. Um, that is patreon.com slash the canyons are calling for my class C level tier. I'm going to host a monthly Canyon phone call where we just all get together, chat canyons for about an hour. I'm going to try to get guests on um, periodically so we can go over like um, specific knots or specific canyons, things like that. So that will be for my class C tier. Um, if you want to just make a one-time donation, you can do that on my website, The Canyons Are Calling. And also, if you have um, an idea for the show or just want to reach out and say hi to me, you can do that at thecanyonsarecalling at gmail.com. And that is exactly what my guest today did. Um, he reached out to let me know that he had been involved in a couple of accidents. And one was the Inglestead accident where Stephen Baker fell, which I covered in episode number two. Um, if you haven't listened to that story yet, please go ahead and listen to that. It's a very tragic story, but we can all learn a lot from what happened to Stephen that day. And then a few weeks after that happened, um, Dan was involved in his own accident where he himself was flown out of Dothraki Canyon after a fall that he had. And so he is here today to tell us those stories and what he learned and what does what he does different now. So who is Dan Cottom? Dan grew up in Texas and then went to BYU, Utah, where he fell in love with the mountains. He's now a 50-something weight loss surgeon who works in Salt Lake. He's been married for 30 years and has five children. He ran for governor in 2019 as libertarian and got 3.5% of the votes, which was 55,000 votes. For him, he was thrilled. He enjoys skiing, rafting, mountain biking when he's not in the canyons, anything that gets him outside of the office. He also mentions his favorite color is orange. Here's my interview with Dan. I hope you enjoy it. Cool. All right. I am here today with Dan Cottom. Um, Dan, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about how you got into the outdoors? I have always been a lover of the outdoors, and it's amazing because I grew up in Texas where there's limited outdoors, but we would come up to Utah every summer, and I was just amazed at the um, the opportunity to do fun things around every corner. And then um, several years after I was married, my um, brother comes up to me and says, you've got to do this with me. And I said, what? He says, there's this canyon called Subway in Zion. And um, 
he had done it and he said it was so neat you've got to go do it so he, he you know we were complete newbies and so we're going out the door to do subway and he goes you know I probably should bring a rope. Apparently, when he had gone, it was filled with water, and they just jumped off all the cliffs in the water. And so uh, my introduction to canyoneering was literally when we said grab a rope, we grabbed a water ski rope, threw it in the backpack, and we went down subway with a water ski rope. Wow. Um, <laughs> we survived that, and um, it's progressed so that, you know, it's one of the things that um, – my wife and I love doing together, and we get out and do it. You know, we probably do ten to fifteen canyons a year. Um, so it's been a it's been a fun, um, tr- you know, journey from a water ski rope to where I am today. But uh, it's a it's it's good, and I'm generally outdoors all the time. I have a very indoor job. I'm a surgeon, and so every time that I can get out of, you know, the temperature controlled sixty eight degree environment, I try to do it good for you it's definitely great therapy from being inside all day (laughs) yes very very good therapy so yeah that's 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 what um uh at canyoneering is one of those things that um we love to do and we love to do it around the zion area um so we're there all the time awesome so that brings us to um the stories that we are here to talk about today. Um, you happened to be on the accident site on the day that Stephen Baker was in Ingolstead. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your role in that day and what you learned from that? Well, you know, the interesting thing about that, and I've listened to your podcast on Stephen Baker, and, and you know, there this the feelings were much the same. Um, the sadness was, you know, the grief was overwhelming. But... You know, we had come on the start of the canyon slightly before they did, and we had chose a different site to go down. And um, we had got our rigging all down, and my son had it down. And he looks over, and he sees someone falling down the rope. And he quickly got down the rest of the rappel, and he called me down since I have a history of being a trauma surgeon. I haven't done it in a while, but, and, you know, getting down to him and seeing that he was, you know, he was conscious and he was breathing and, you know, he didn't have a spinal injury. And there's there's a few things that I could do. Um, and But for the most part, you know, when you're down in a canyon, it's amazing how helpless you are. Like all the skills that I know how to do, I know how to do in a hospital, not at the bottom of a canyon. And so, I mean, I'm marginally better than the average person but not much, which is kind of the sad part. You'd think that, hey, you know, in this type of situation, I'd love to have someone with medical training, but the truth is in this type of situation, I'm marginally better than useless. Uh, You know, in retrospect, you know, and I heard um, uh, them talk about that, is that we probably should have done more to hoist them up quicker um, and not wait for the helicopter. But I learned some things from that um, that I put together in my um, safety profile. And the other thing I learned is that, uh, for the most part, helicopters in canyons, they don't go together very well, right? Meaning that mm-hmm. you're so far down, even if it's um, 
uh, you know, 20 or 30 feet, uh, baskets are incredibly dangerous. I've learned this since I've done it, especially when you drop them into these narrow gorges. Winds totally freak out helicopter pilots, like they don't like to go down um, into some place close. And there are, you know, you need to take these things in consideration. And it's amazing how close we were um, in that canyon to people, but yet we were so far away. And especially when you, like, the people that are going to rescue you, for the most part, can't fly a helicopter there. So they've got to hike in, right? So ever how long it takes you to get to wherever you're at, um, you have to at least double that or triple that because to try to get help in. And so uh, even though we're doing canyons and we're discovering more all the time that are close to centers of population, you know, they're an hour away, but they're really rescue-wise like six to eight hours away in the best of circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you think we, we live in this beautiful, wonderful society with helicopters flying everywhere. And it's, it is true, but in the sense that counting on it isn't very, isn't very good plan, right? The best That's thing nice. is to plan to be safe and then still things happen. And, you know, uh, my story, um, uh, unlike Stevens, actually had a, a good outcome. But the truth is that, you know, um, there are things we can mitigate and, um, and we should, and we should all learn those things to try to mitigate. And, you know, I just told you, we took a ski rope down the first time we did it, water ski rope, and it was an old water ski rope too. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do to be better prepared for what's, what we're encountering down there because it's just a long time to get rescued, um, mm -hmm. whether it's a broken ankle or it's a broken back. Yeah, I agree. So that leads into um, the Dothraki story. What happened yeah. to you in Dothraki? Well, this is great because, you know, I love doing new canyons and I kind of keep my ear out there to see a canyon that's good and it's close by um, the St. George area. And Dothraki just got posted on Blue Gnome and I was so excited. It looked like a great canyon and... You know, it hasn't been done too much. And I was like, fabulous. This should be a, a good adventure. And um, for those of you who um, don't know where Dothraki is, it's by Hilldale. Um, and the route description that they give on Blue Gnome is a very spicy route description and fun. But it's a lot of scrambling through a lot of trees. And you get to go across this thing called Dragon's Back. And... It's quite an adventurous hike up and then across Dragon's Back. But I just want to tell all the listeners, there's a super easy way to the top of Dothraki. And you just walk up the approach to Water Canyon and cut across for 20 minutes and you're there. Um, I think that's uh, the more popular uh, route now. Uh, yes, that's yeah. the way to go. Um, unless you want to do Dragon's Back specifically, which I highly recommend. It's a really cool spot, but um, it's better to go down... Um, uh, go up Water Canyon and then cut across the top of the Mesa. So it was a fine October day and, you know, a little bit cool. And I love canyoneering in that. I don't get hot, dry. I don't get hungry. Just, you know, go, there's 14 repels in the canyon. And I thought, okay, there's no water. I'm not going to freeze. 
gives you know the high for the day was like in 65 or 70 and it was sunny so you know the exposed parts were going to be beautiful and so we started going down Dothraki and we have done lots of canyons so we're not nobody on the trip was a newbie we've all done over 100 canyons um and we're going down and we do the first three repels and they have a couple what we would call depending on your comfort level spicy down climbs and i looked at one of these spicy down climbs and i said to myself you know what i could set up an anchor really easy here and it wouldn't be hard there's boulders everywhere and we're going to just repel this down climb it's only you know 30 feet and so we did um and so what i found is i found two um medium-sized boulders that were sticking out of the ground about a foot and a half and they were laying next to each other like an a and so i got my webbing out made an anchor and i pulled on these things and pulled on these things they did not move one iota and i kicked them and i was like all right this is pretty good and so um there were three of us uh, i sent my uncle down first he did fine i looked at the rocks they didn't move one iota i sent my wife down second these didn't move one iota and i was going down last and the amazing thing is, is i was going down and ever since we had that experience on the stephen baker we're always focused on a safety and so what we mean by safety is we always say there's got to be two forms of safety on every repel not one and so the first form of safety we have on a repel is our belay device uh and the second form of safety could be a prusik or it could be a fireman belay or it could be a belay from above right you can hook them in and run a under each down so we always have two forms of safety and we don't care how big the repel is um and so like if we're doing lots of small repels and we don't want to wait everyone will bring a VT Prusik, which you had mentioned in one of your previous things, you're getting Rich Carlson on it. That is like my favorite safety device ever. And so we were going down and I was going over, there was a little lip and I was going over and my uncle was fireman belaying me from below and he pulled on the rope. And even though I could see no daylight between these two rocks and an A, apparently that was enough of a fulcrum to pull my loop anchor off that boulder and so the anchor slid off the boulder up between mm. a place where I thought the two rocks were together right yeah. and I fell I haven't been back although it's not because I don't want to go back it just hasn't fit in my schedule but and I will go back um, uh, someday soon but the truth is I fell we estimate somewhere between 20 and 30 feet, right? Um, and so when I fell, when you know when you're on repel, you're leaning back, you're just free falling straight down. You don't have any chance to do anything. And there was a rock sticking up in the ground. Um, as you know, if you go in Dothraki, it's all rock everywhere. There's no dirt anywhere. And so I fell and I landed uh, on my right side on this rock that was sticking up about a foot and a half right on my rib cage. And um, to cut to the chase, I didn't know this now, but when I fell, 
I broke eight my eight of my ribs on that side, my sternum, my left shoulder, and several vertebrae on my back. Oh, so, wow. And this isn't a big repel, like, I mean, and I'm just, and I, and I want to get the fact out, and this is why I talk about safety on small repels, because, you know, if that's a 20-foot repel, um, and that's a lot of damage, and I could have hit my head, right? I was, yeah. and I will say this today, I am super lucky um, that I hit my side and not my head, because it would have been over. Whether or not I had a helmet on or not, um, you know, you fall 20 feet, you hit your head on your rock, there's going to be serious damage. And that's from my background as a trauma surgeon that I know that. So, you know, a helmet isn't going to really save you in that situation. So um, yeah. the point was I hit the ground and, you know, you hit so hard. And I literally thought, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to die right here because I couldn't breathe, right? And, you know, when you're in that situation, that... Um, few seconds and I don't know how many seconds it was before I could finally take a breath but it was a long time before I could finally get my breath in right and I finally got my breath in and uh, you know it was excruciating pain but the interesting thing about that is that um, when I fell my anchor came with me and so my uncle comes up to me and as I'm lying on the ground and, and one of the most ironic things, because he, he didn't think I was going to be hurt that bad, apparently. And he says, look, Dan, your anchor was intact. Right? And I was like, so my knot didn't slip, right? And in fact, I still carry that anchor with me today. And I always pack it in my pack like my talisman, right? This is my thing to always remember yeah. that safety is important. And so... I finally was able to like uh, get my uncombobulated and I looked around and I looked at the canyon walls and remembering my experience with Stephen, I knew in Dothraki there was no way a helicopter was ever going to be able to get me from right here. The other thing that you need to understand is that we always carry one of those emergency rescue beacons with us. And we'd always done that even before we met Stephen Baker because, you know, we're somewhat safety conscious. And the thing about those narrow canyons, yes, you can get a signal out, but you have to wait for the satellite to appear in that tiny window that you're down, right? And so you may wait 45 minutes for that window to appear, right? To get a signal out right so it's not as if you could do it now in Stephen's case we were on the edge of Eaglestead right and so we have a big sky up there as opposed to if we'd been down at the bottom in Eaglestead with that there would have been no signal got out we would have had to gone down the whole canyon or climb back up the rope so um, we knew we we had we tried to get uh, a signal out at that point because um, I was pretty beat up, um, but after a few times of looking at that emergency send beacon, we're like, this ain't going to happen. And so there's three of us, so we know we've either got to split up or got to keep going. My wife always says I have no pain threshold, meaning that pain doesn't really affect me, which is quite a bit true. Um, so I was able to get up, 
I couldn't carry my backpack, but I could walk. And we had to get to the canyon where there'd be some place, and I'd never done this canyon before, where we could get a signal out and potentially be rescued. And so, you know, um, eight broken ribs, a broken back, and the sternum, we started. Um, wow. And that's really painful. And then, but the worst was is that um, I th there were three. I had done three repels at that point, and I did three more while I was in, in this. And you know, you don't realize how much your stomach and your ribs uh, function when you're repelling. Um, when um, you're repelling with broken ribs and they're actively involved in what you're doing. So every time, you know, you go on that repel and you're feeding the rope through because, you know, I'm not in a point where I can let it flow through freely because I'm in an excruciating agony. So um, I have my belay device and, you know, we all are now running critter twos or squirrels just because of um, that experience with Stephen. And so I have it on um, a higher friction setting, so I can don't want to get at all out of control. But every time you feed it through, it bounces up, and the rig, the ribs bounce against each other. And so I've done so many canyons, and I've got rope stuck at at the bottom. But we get all three of us down. There was one 150 foot rappel, then two smaller rappels, and we get down to the bottom. And the rope got stuck, and it was the worst, of course it did, and it was the worst rope stuck we've ever gotten, ever. And so I get to the mm -hmm. bottom there, and we literally spent the next hour and a half or two hours trying to get the rope unstuck, right? And of course, I am totally useless in the whole thing. And my wife is carrying my backpack, and like most relationships, I always volunteer to take the heaviest backpack. But now my wife has her backpack and my backpack, and my uncle has his backpack, and he always carries a lot of rope because um, we we don't like to go light on the ropes. Um, so we always have three times the amount of rope that we think that we would need for repels, um, and so we're not uh, so we're not exactly you know uh, have light packs. So she's doing that, and so they're both trying to get this rope unstuck, and I'm just lying on the ground there moaning, as you can expect you would be lying on the ground moaning with all that happening. Right. And so hmm. we we get down, we finally get it up stuck, and you know this all takes a tremendous amount of time. That's the other thing is that you always imagine you can do things fast, but when someone's hurt, everything slows down, right? The canyon that would take you two hours is going to take you six hours. And so we do that, get the un rope unstuck, and then they got some narrow portions on the canyon that narrow up after that. And so literally I'm crawling on the ground and I remember there's this narrow portion and they of course they've got a choke stone in the middle of it as you've seen in many of the canyons and it's just about waist high and about the size of a refrigerator so you can either climb over it which i couldn't do or climb under it which was unbelievably painful right and so i had been walking and doing this for you know this happened probably at like 10 30 in the morning and um i climbed underneath that thing and even though I have this super high pain threshold, it just like took everything out of me, right? Everything out of me. And, but here's the amazing thing. And I'm not saying 
God planned anything, but you know, when you come out of that narrow section and I just climbed over and it was so painful, um, the canyon opened up a little bit and, um, and a little funny story. And this is something I, um, I learned on this, you know, um, when I was doing all this, uh, unfortunately I also was a trauma surgeon, like I said earlier, and I started having this shearing chest pain and, um, my, um, trauma training says I was going to have something called an aortic dissection, which means that my aorta was starting to split in half, which is the main blood vessel of your body. When that happens, you have like 15 or 20 minutes to live. And so I thought this was happening to me. And I guess it was a point where, you know, I was with my uncle and I was with my wife and it was very comforting to be able to say goodbye. Right. Cause I thought it was going to die. Um, and I didn't end up dying. And then I managed to get up strength and keep going. And then I crawled under this rock. This was like several miles later after I, you know, we waited for me not to die. <laughs> and so I get out there and it was open and we could get a signal out. So if you imagine I had fallen like five hours before, right? And we could never get a signal out because you're in Dothraki, right? This is why I want to say, you know, this is kind of the light, the limits of technology. Technology is wonderful, but it works where it works, not where you want it to work. And yeah. so we could get a signal out. And this is where, um, and we experience a lot of this with Stephen and we experience us with theirs, that the emergency services are unbelievable. And I salute to everyone, but they have certain protocols and things that they go through. And, you know, the biggest thing from their perspective is they want to help you, but they don't want to die in the process, right? And so they have to follow what they think is safe to get you out, okay? So the first thing we do, we send off the beacon. They, And it's very fast. Once you get that signal, they're right on there, right? And they're, we're texting back and forth. They're getting our signal. They know where we're at. And once we're able to get signal out, just like in Stephen Baker's case, there's a helicopter flying over an hour later, right? And so they send the civilian helicopter from St. George and the civilian helicopter flies over that and it's just at dusk now, right? And the civilian helicopter is like, there's no way I'm going down there. It's not happening. So you can watch them. And this is kind of one of those moments where you see them fly over and then hover and then they just fly away. Oh, shoot. And they're like, oh my gosh, like what is going to happen now? Right? Now, we don't know what's going on in the background. They had alerted the uh, search and rescue team um, from Washington County and was coming. And they had, there are ways up onto that mesa with um, forerunners and razors. And they had like six and 1200 foot ropes. And they were all getting ready to set up to descend right where we were, which was like, that's like a, to get down where we were was like a 900 foot cliff. It was huge, right? But it was open, but it was, it was just a very big spot. And they would have got to us. But one of the things we didn't know, because we didn't check the weather report, there was a huge storm coming. Like, you know the way it is in Washington County and, and where you live in Carmel. It's either a massive storm or it's nothing, right? And so we had one of those massive storms coming. And so they were worried about us. And for good reason, but it's going to take them a while to get the whole search and rescue team up there and do that. And it was it it was down in the high 30s and low 40s that night. 
And we didn't know that helicopter flew away and they said they're going to try to get a land team to us. And that's all that we knew. But um, so we got all, all together, all tried to spoon, right? Um, we had a few jackets and things. Um, but the truth was is that I could never get comfortable because if I laid on my back, I had broken vertebrae on my back that would hurt. If I laid on my side, my shoulder would hurt. And if I laid on my other side, my ribs would hurt. And so, um, you know, it got to be late and I was kind of going, it wasn't really shock in the sense that shock is uh, a, uh, where your blood um, can't supply the organs with oxygen. But it was, uh, I was starting to get slightly hypothermic, right? because of the trauma and everything. And so my wife gets back on this little emergency beacon and says, listen, my husband's not doing well, what can we do? And so the emergency medicine rescue team um, sent a text out to Nellis Air Force Base. And so Nellis Air Force Base, um, they have these uh, teams that are there and all they do is train all the time to rescue pilots who are down behind enemy lines. And so when the call came out, they spent all their time training to actually rescue a real person. They were like, sweet, they mobilized <laughs> and they, and it's, and you remember this is, it was Saturday night. They had to call all the people. They had to find enough people. They have three teams. Um, that weren't out at the clubs or doing anything because Nell's ever in Vegas. So they found enough sober people and pilots and the things called PJs, which are the people who rescue the pilots. And they get in an Apache helicopter and they said yes to it. And they fly in a an Apache helicopter out. So you see, and they told us there was going to be the military coming. And I've been fortunate enough in my life. I've had a, a chance to go helicopter skiing a few times and been in helicopters enough and when you compare a civilian helicopter to a military helicopter there's no comparison they're just so much more powerful so much more loud and so they fly over a couple times and they spot us and um, the interesting thing about that is is that um, they train all the time to go down between like trees and things like that. So they set up these obstacles and they literally fly them down in between these obstacles to pick up objects. And so what happened was in this case is, I, I mentioned earlier about the winds, you know, when you have a military helicopter, the winds don't affect them as much because they have their bigger blades and bigger, um, uh, more power, but they're really concerned about weight. So they looked at how far I was down and when they saw that, they said they have too much fuel so winds could push them side to side. So they had to go dump jet fuel out and they had to jump as much as they could to be able to get me and then fly back to St. George, right? So I want you, this is like, <laughs> and so then they said, we can't get all the way down near you, but instead of having a 130 foot line, they have like a 200 and some odd foot line that can go down. Okay, so it's about double the reach of a, um, a normal helicopter that a civilian would use. And so th they literally go down into the canyon and 
we'll get to, I talked to the pilot afterwards, they literally had 10 feet on either side of the blades as they go down and then let that cord all the way down. And when the cord got all the way down, it could uh, barely get to the ground, right? And so we are, we are sitting there and the helicopter's going and it's like a hurricane's going off. Like I said, it's like so much more powerful than any helicopter I've been around. And then it's like an angel from heaven dressed in green with night vision goggles comes sprinting down the side of the hill, um, down the cliff face. And what had happened was, is I was like, we had taken shelter under one of the few trees in Dothraki. Um, and I was like, well, I was assuming that they were going to be in one of those leader baskets and I was going to lay down in it. And then they were going to hoist me up. And I was like, listen, I can gut it up. I can walk 20 feet over to where it's open. Right. But what happened was, is when I got up and walked over there, the helicopter pilot and the PJ, because they hate taking people up in those leaders because they spin and they cause problems. They saw that I was standing. So they said, okay, you're going up with, um, with a sling around you, right? But I didn't know that they had decided this. So they come running down the hill and he looks at me and he just, and, and it's, you know, they're in charge there. They said, okay, you're gonna lift your hands up and I'm gonna put the sling underneath your chest and then you're gonna put your hands down and then I'm going, and this is all with the helicopter hovering above you and wind going and you can hardly keep your eyes open and they have goggles. And then I'm gonna wrap your legs around your chest. And, you know, you're not in a position to say anything because I can barely stand. Um, the pain is so bad. And so then he whips this around you, and then it cinches down around my chest. Now, remember, I have eight broken ribs, a broken back, a broken shoulder, and a broken sternum, right? And he puts this around my chest, and then it yanks you off the ground. And then so you don't lift your hands up from pain. He is clipped in above you on this, and he wraps his legs around your chest and squeezes so you cannot raise your hands up huh wow and so then he grabs me and as soon as he grabs me puts his his, his legs around my chest the helicopter starts taking off it doesn't wait for it to lift up it wants out of there yeah and so we're literally bouncing off the side of the cliffs as the helicopter is lifting up with his legs around me and going through branches on the trees Oh, man. Going up into the helicopter. And mm-hmm. I am screaming, and not to be pejorative, I like to say like a little girl, only because it's so high, it's so painful, I've never let out anything like that, right? Yeah. And um, then I get in the helicopter, and um, they give me a fentanyl lollipop, and essentially it's over for me, right? Because I'm out of pain, I'm going to some place, I... Um, didn't have any internal injuries. I knew I had, didn't have any internal injuries because um, by this time, if I'd had some big happening like my spleen or my liver or my aorta, I would have bled to death a long time ago. So I felt pretty good about what I was, you know, my situation. I was like, okay, I have a lot of broken bones. I'm going to be laid up for quite a while, but I'm going to make it through that. But remember, there's two people that I was with. Yeah, they didn't pick me up till like two in the morning, two or two thirty in the morning, and this big storm is supposed to be in by like eight o'clock in the morning, right? Mm. And so, my wife had just watched what happened to me, and she was like, "I don't want to do that," right? Because she was like, "That's crazy." 
Um, and so they just thought that they were going to make it through the night and they were going to get up in the morning that we already, my uncle had already set up the next rappel with the next rope so they could get out early. And they were thinking that's what they were going to do. And, um, so they stayed warm the best they could. Um, and then I think it was 5 a.m. in the morning because the storm was coming in really fast. The Apache helicopter came back and got my uncle and my wife out too. And it's amazing because talking to my wife, she was like, that hurt me when they wrapped their legs around my chest and did that when they lifted them out. And um, I can only say that absolutely that, you know, that was really painful. And, um, but it was painful for her and she didn't have anything wrong with her. Right? Huh. Yeah. So it was, um, it was quite the experience. I mean, it was a normal recuperative time. Um, what you'd expect for something like that. But, you know, kind of the whole reason why I reached out to you is, is that just to emphasize the fact that these are in beautiful, incredible places, but you're, you're never close to rescue, right? It just, I mean, it's, it's hours and hours and hours, even if you break your ankle. Um, yeah. And these um, things that we do to stay safe um, are great and they help out. Um, but when people think about going into these places, especially some of the more remote places, um, you know, you know, beacons, emergency planning, taking few risks as possible and be under the, you know, don't be under the illusion that help is nearby. Um, like I'm just gonna, you know, yeah, make this, it's, it's going to be close. So, um, I, you know, that was really, you know, kind of what I wanted to get across. So, yeah. Thank you very much for reaching out. Cause I mean, those are definitely things that people don't think about, you know, they're just thinking next Canyon adventure, next, you know, thing. And only newbies get hurt. The more experienced people don't, but that is so bullshit. And mother nature doesn't care how experienced you are. Yeah. Gravity, gravity doesn't care who you are. 100%, right. Yeah. And the, you know, the most interesting thing about um, the experience that I had with Stephen was, is that I knew he hadn't done a lot of canyons, but listening to it, I didn't realize how much climbing he'd done, right? right. So, you know, even though um, you would say he was a canyon newbie, but he wasn't a repelling newbie, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why he went down first, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know... These things that we do, I mean, we always need to keep it at the forefront because, you know, it's it's simply, uh, you know, one step away, which is kind of like one of my big things is, is that, you know, I tell people just throw away the ATC unless you have um, a, uh, a prosec below it or a fireman below it, just because, you know, for these new, and I'm admitting these wonderful ropes, these eight, nine millimeter ropes, um, they're great and they're light and they float, but they're not as friction, you know. And when I first started canyoneering, I had a climbing rope and an ATC. And one of the things that, you know, it was so sad down there and affected me tremendously, but it's like I had made all the same mistakes that Stephen made on that time, 
personally, and I was still standing there, right? right. And, you know, things like that. Um, there's no reason why, you know, you know, for $40, you can't buy a critter too to be able to, um, you know, set up um, a thing so you can increase the friction while you're on repel, right? Um, or tie it off while you're on repel. Um, and then the, the other thing, you know, I think is just like, uh, you you want to know what I think the best the safety device is, is actually that VT Prusik. I mean, how many times have, uh, you know, I'm bringing someone and you said, all right, you need a personal anchor system on this canyon, and they don't show up, and then I can use the VT Prusik for that. Or, you know, I had a person who um, we were repelling, and they got their hair caught um, in a belay device, and they were already over the lip, and I could anchor myself onto the rope and go over the lip and clip a knife down so they could cut their hair off and still have a reasonable anchor. It's just a very versatile device that, you know, allows you to do a lot of things that you would otherwise be really, really, um, without, you know, uh, uh, without any safety. And like one of the other things that I've been doing lately is like when I get to one of these really spicy down climbs, you know, I still want to down climb it, but I don't want to be roped in, but I can take a personal anchor system, attach it to a VT Prusik on the rope, and then I can down climb free, and if I happen to miss something, right, which, you know, Lord knows we all do, I at least have a backup, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you fall 15 feet and break your ankle, like I said, it's going to be 12 hours to get you out of some of these canyons, and those are the canyons that are nearby. Like, if you're off in Escalante somewhere, right? Right. It, <laughs> Yeah, could be a long time. It, it could be a really, really, <laughs> really long time. Um, so I just, you know, a precautionary tale. And then even with all that that we did, you know, things still happen, right? Yep. You know, it's not like I haven't set up anchors before. I've set up a lot of anchors before. So, and it's not like we didn't, haven't been down lots of canyons. I've been down lots of canyons and yet I'm right. still lying on the ground. Well, it was a solid anchor. You know, it held the other two up, people before yeah. you. Right. How were you and supposed to know? I watched it like, for any movement. Fall over. It's so, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. Early on in my canyoneering days, I saw a girl who had fallen um, from the last rappel in um, Imlay Canyon in the Narrows. We were coming right. down Orderville, and we tried to help her, but her ankle was so shattered um, that even though my friend was a first responder, he was just like, we can treat her for shock and wait for the rangers to escort her out, you know? Um, yeah, it was hours later before we saw the rangers going up with their cart to carry her out. But that um, encouraged me to take a wilderness first responder class so that I could be able to, you know, like, what if something happens to me or my crew, you know? We need to be able to help these guys. And, um, yeah, sometimes there's not much you can do, even with a medical training yeah, and, you know, people like me, I'm very good when I have my tools with me, but you take me out with no tools, right? Yeah. Yeah. And which is why, like, whenever we, get, like, we have a simple rule, like, so when you're the first person down, you always have a VT Prusik on, right? Because there's no fireman blade, and there's no one going from above. I guess you could go from above, too. But when you get a bunch of really advanced canyoneers, right? You don't want to slow everyone down. We can move fast through a canyon, right? You take the little four-hour that it says to take, and I can do it in an hour and a half or two hours. But I literally can put a VT Prusik on my belay, on my rope, 
in 30 seconds and take it off in 30 seconds. Yeah. There is no real reason to expose yourself like that person did going down the last thing of inlay. And I remember that rappel coming out of inlay, how tired I was. It was when it was all full and we had been cold like for like eight hours straight. And my muscles were cold and I was in a dry suit. That last rappel in inlay, we were beat. And I let go a little too early and then you have a shattered ankle. So what happened with her was um, she actually clipped to the wrong side of the robe. And to me, I was it was like my second year in canyoning. And so I didn't understand how you could clip to the wrong side of the rope. I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, how is that even possible? And my friend said, it's not possible the way we rig because we don't drop both sides until the last person goes. Right? Right. But they were at the end of the canyon. They were in a hurry. So for some reason, they doubled it, dropped both sides, she was so confused. I should try to find out who she was and get her on the show. So, but yeah, I'm going to echo that. What one of the first responders there was from the rescue um, team from Kane County, who used to run a canyoneering company, and he stopped running a canyoneering company when he clipped into the wrong side of the rope. Yeah, and fell a um, long ways, and it scared him so badly. He said, I have to stop for a couple years. Yeah, that was Nick Smith, and I interviewed him on number three. I moved. I've got a a list of them. Yeah, I actually moved to Kanab to guide for his company. And then um, it wasn't full time enough for me, so I started working for Tom full time. And then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Um, see, this is the thing is that. And and the, uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention that. I had heard um, in thing too is I sometimes um, do backcountry skiing um, and I take a guide when the avalanche danger is high. And the guide I go with all the time has been to the Everest several times. And he always swears that you should have your blade devices six to eight inches away from your body. And this was something I heard in that podcast. And the reason why is it allows you to use both hands really easily. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, we've done it, and it makes so much sense. And that's one of the things that I always teach the people going, get that belay device off your harness. Um, yeah, I like to have my hand like to extend it to you. Yeah, sure. because you can use break. both hands, right? Mm-hmm. And using both hands, if you get tired, you can grab them both. You can, And it just makes a lot of sense. Um, and if you notice that the new canyoneering-specific harnesses, um, like the one from Petzl, and the one from Edelride are coming out, so you can do that really easily. Um, and the one from Kong coming out, so you can do that really easily. So, you know, this is something that people, if they're listening, they can do with a, a, a simple personal anchor system. But it's kind of one of those deals is there's some things like mine that we're not going to be able to avoid, but most of the other stuff, you know, we should be able to do. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I'll just be a little more safe out there. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, sure, yeah. and uh, and then here's the other fun thing that happened with that whole Dothraki thing. After they saved me, I reached out to them to tell thank you. And, and at Thanksgiving, um, they were having a big um, get-together with all the people on that uh, arm of the Air Force at Nellis Air Force Base. Um, and so we got to go bring some food out, some turkey. Um, turkeys and food out to their big Thanksgiving party and then they let me see the helicopter that they picked me up in and I got to meet the crew 
Um, and That's really cool. literally they, they had to take off the machine gun off the helicopter before they went out and picked me up. Right. Um, wow. and, uh, I, you know, my kids got to sit in and put the helmets on. I didn't realize this, but, um, so many people go into making one of those fly. Like there was literally 20 people that had to get the helicopter ready. So the pilot, the co-pilot and the PJ could fly out to get me. Right. Uh, wow. and, and they tell me that just to fly one of those helicopters is $18,000 an hour. Right. And so it's super expensive. And, you know, uh, if you have to have someone pick you up, make it the military. I never even saw a bill. That's I would incredible. have seen a bill if the St. George helicopter had picked <laughs> me up, but they couldn't. But um, that was, um, mm. we kept waiting for it to come and it never came. So, um, but I'm super grateful to all the guys. I had the chance to say thank you in person to all of them and shake their hands. They were all super nice. And uh, it ended up being, you know, like many learning experiences life is that after at the end i learned a lot from both those experiences the one with steven and the one with me um well we'd rather not go through similar experiences or see other people go through similar experiences and if i had to do dothraki again um i would have picked a bigger boulder um and maybe made a longer um uh a longer uh anchor right and just let it out further as opposed to just, oh, these two boulders are the closest, you know, instead uh, lengthen it out and just do it and deal with the pull as it was, right? Because it was a short pull. I wasn't going to get, have a problem with it, right? Mm -hmm. And honestly, if I get a, a, a pull stuck on a 20-foot rappel, you know, climbing up that is only going to take me five minutes, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I should have, uh, I should have just said, the hell with it use bring more webbing right never let the decision um be on the amount of webbing you have and so i had 25 feet of webbing and you know they always tell you to bring 50 feet and i'm going to second that is that so that was you know when you look back and say what did i do wrong what am i going to change i'm going to bring more webbing and so now i have a little dry bag so i'm not carrying wet webbing and i throw that in and it's always got at least 50 feet of webbing so my decision is never made on how much webbing I have. That's so, awesome. That's a good point too. Very anyway. cool. All right. Well, to the end of the portion of the, the podcast where I ask my everyone these questions, <laughs> canyoneering makes me super hungry. Uh, what's your favorite in canyon snack? So that's a great thing. And I asked my wife about that. And we are going to be the lamest at the people because honestly we grab whatever bar is there we don't have a favorite in kenya snack um and lately if i take anything if i have the chance i like to take a raw carrot not baby carrots because they keep water really well they have a lot of sugar in them and they literally don't get smashed by anything and so a raw carrot is probably if i have the chance i do that but honestly just water and whatever bars there and honestly we don't even hardly ever eat when we go down these things and i don't know it's just not what we do i don't know why it was true um so <laughs> but, you eat a good um, breakfast before you go and a good dinner when you get back yeah 
Right. And, I, and, and then the other thing that's weird is, you know, they talk about bringing water all the time. And I'm like a freaking camel. I can go all day long in super hot heat and not worry about drinking water, which is really weird. But I'm going to second what everyone says, bring lots of water. But um, don't pay attention to me if you're out with me because I'm a freak. Okay. So. <laughs> right. Depending on the time of year, too, you need more water than other times. Because I did a hike in the Grand Canyon in August where I had not enough water. And then I did the same hike in December and didn't even drink half the amount I brought in August. So it was weird. <laughs> well, that's very true. That's very true. Yeah. Um, so what's your favorite after Canyon beverage? You know, we have a special cooler that we bring on our little things. And it's so whenever we finish... There's a cold Diet Coke waiting at the end. Um, nice. So that's my favorite after Canyon beverage. Cool um, and refreshing. <laughs> and we go to Great Lakes to make sure that that's there as soon as we're done. Very awesome. <laughs> um, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? So, so I have lots of um, objectives in my life, but I'm going to tell you what my canyoneering objectives are for the next year. Um, number one, I want to do check board canyon in zion it's always intrigued me never done it it's off back it doesn't get a lot of play um and so and they say it's spectacular and then you get to go out cold up then down the narrow so i'm like how cool is that so that's um one the second one um i want to do the slot canyons up at whistler bc um uh, mm -hmm. because i've never been to where there's all those they're carved into granite right and I've seen the YouTube videos of those things. You know, they just look amazing, and I want to do that. And then the third one, um, we had been planning, trying to plan a trip to hike from the top to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and I had listened to your podcast about Grand Canyoneering, and I was like, that is so lame. I'm going to go down Garden Canyon, right? So that is now Yay. right up there. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going down Bright Angel Trail, then down Garden Canyon, spend the night on the beach, then hike out at night, right? Um, and so I've modified my want to do things by listening to your podcast. Oh, that's so. awesome to hear. Very cool. I think that's why I asked that question, because it inspires me also to increase my list. <laughs> right. And so because so now I'm adding those BC canyons to my list. That sounds right, incredible. And I, and I had that book even, and it was sat on my shelf. And I listened to your podcast, and I was like, holy cow. The next day, I was up reading about all the canyons, and then I've got all the beta on that um, Garden Canyon now, and then what I need to do. And so I am so pumped to go do that canyon. Um, and I, I, you know, I got that from the podcast. And those two guests, like, oh, my gosh. You know, when you have single-minded determination, those guys are just unbelievable, um, you know. I can tell you that when I listen to that podcast, I'm like, I am such a newbie, right? Um, compared yeah. to those guys. Um, so that is what my canyoneering goals are for the next year. I'll do lots of smaller canyons over the next year, but those are my kind of things that I wanted wanted to. They sound very awesome. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Is there any other safety tips or anything else you'd like to add before we say goodbye? Um, let's see. No, I think that's really, you know, those are the big ones that we, uh, you know, learned. And then, um, 
just reiterate, if you're going to do Dothraki, go up the water canyon approach. <laughs> <laughs> right. and you'll have a lot more daylight left than we have. We, you know, it was a short daylight time of year, and we spent so much of it using that approach um, that they describe on Blue Gnome. And I will tell you, if, you're, if you want to increase the adventure quotient, that's a fun way to do it. But if you just want the smooth, you know, a smooth approach and going, I would go up the Water Canyon thing. I'm not saying the guys in Blue Gnome are wrong because I did it and Dragon's Back was super neat. But if I do it again, it'll be up Water Canyon. Awesome to hear. And pay attention to which boulders you anchor on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh. All right. Well, thank you very much for reaching out to me and sharing your stories. I really appreciate it. And thank you to you. I mean, honestly, it is so awesome to have someone who's putting out a podcast like this. Um, and it makes my trip to and from work in the mornings much more enjoyable. Yay. Good to hear. Yay. Awesome. Well, I think the canyons are calling. We should probably go. All right. Okay. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you very much for listening to that episode with Dan Cottom. I hope you all enjoyed the show and learned something. I know when I'm setting up a new anchor, I'm definitely going to make sure that it is solid, that there's no way that the anchor can slip over the rocks um, and maybe extend it if I need to definitely a lot to learn from that one um and also just keep in mind that you are never close to rescue when you're out in these canyons anyway i hope you're enjoying the show if you have any um ideas or would just like to reach out go ahead and do that at the canyons are calling at gmail.com check out my website the canyons are calling.com this beautiful music in the background is provided by z the handpan man you can check him out at zthehandpanman.com. Also, shout out to Tig Booth. He created the intro music. There's links to them on the website and in the show notes. The canyons are calling now. I gotta go. <laughs>